Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Bishop continues navigating the mystery of the Holy Trinity this week. Hear how the Nicene Creed resolves the heretical issues that began popping up. The prayer was first written at the Council of Nicaea and finished at the First Council of Constantinople. So technically, it's not the Nicene Creed, but... It's the Nicene Constantinopolitan Creed. Uh. But because it's so hard to say Constantinopolitan (laughs) Creed. If you have a question for Bishop, send a text to the Holy Cross College text line 260-436-9598. Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes is brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. What's the difference between Notre Dame Federal Credit Union and a bank? Well, banks are owned by investors looking to make a profit. Notre Dame FCU is different. We are a not-for-profit member-owned cooperative. Our mission is to help our members improve their lives by providing products and services to save them money. If we end up with too much money ourselves, we simply give it away to our members' favorite charities. Last year, over a million dollars. You already share our values. Why not share in our benefits? Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman here with our good bishop. Thank you again for taking some time out for us. You're welcome, Kyle. How are you today? I'm doing well. You're good. Looking healthy? Staying healthy? I'm trying. Good. I need more exercise. How about you? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely. Always. The summer is time, but yeah, hopefully yeah. we'll get some time. It's been nice out. I'm looking forward to continuing our conversation about the Trinity. I was I was studying up, listening to last week's episode on the way here, so I'm hopefully prepared for part two. Good. Maybe I'll give you a quiz on the last episode. Okay. We'll, we'll see how that goes. Do you have a, an opening prayer for us? I thought it would be good to pray the act of faith, because since we're talking about the most holy trinity and the central mystery of our faith, the mystery of God and himself, when we pray the act of faith, we profess our faith in the the most holy trinity. So, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. O my God, I firmly believe that you are one God in three divine persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I believe that your divine Son became man and died for our sins, and that he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe these and all the truths which the Holy Catholic Church teaches, because you have revealed them, who are eternal truth and wisdom, who can neither deceive nor be deceived. In this faith I intend to live and die. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, thank you, Bishop. Last time, talking about the Trinity, you talked about the language uh, that we use with the Trinity and also talked about Scripture and how we don't see the term Trinity in Scripture, but we see a lot of evidence of the Trinity, including like the, the baptism of Jesus where the Father is speaking, the Son is there, and the Holy Spirit descends as a dove, as an example. I think you said you, there were some more things about Scripture. Right, because, of course, the Trinity was revealed. We talked about how the Trinity kind of was foreshadowed in the Old Testament, but Mm -hmm. then fully revealed by Christ, Mm -hmm. who is, of course, the Son. But throughout the New Testament, Jesus uh, refers to God as Father. Mm -hmm. Okay, so, so clearly in Revelation, we have God as Father. And significantly, Jesus when he speaks of God as Father, 
he's really stressing his unique identity as the eternally begotten son of the father. Mm -hmm. Remember, for example, in in John's gospel, Jesus says, no one knows the son except the father, and no one knows the father except the son, and anyone to whom the son chooses to reveal him. Well, the son has revealed the father to us. God, the father, is the one who begets the son eternally. Christ is the eternally begotten and only son of the father. St. John explains this when he says at the very beginning of his gospel, in the beginning was the word, Mm -hmm. and the word was with God, and the word was God. Right. Well, the word is the son. So this relationship between Christ and his father is within God's very life of the Trinity. But of course, Christ became, or the son became man, the word became flesh. And because of that, Christ has said that we can call God father Mm -hmm. because in Christ, we can call him father. Now, our sonship is adoptive. We're not sons and daughters of God like Jesus is the son of the father. Right. We speak of it as adopted sons and daughters. So that that makes a distinction between Christ's relationship with the father and our relationship with the father. Ours is an adoptive sonship and we receive that at baptism. I've heard that explained as something actually more amazing. We might look at that as, oh, it's not quite as uh, direct or whatever, but the fact that God chose us to be adopted sons and daughters is actually pretty significant. Yeah. And that's, uh, I mean, St. Paul reflects on that in his letters. It's so beautiful. And and really, we, we have this sonship in virtue of our incorporation into the mystical body of Christ mm-hmm. through baptism. That's how we become sons and daughters of God. That's mm-hmm. the, our dignity through baptism. Very beautiful to reflect on. We're entering into the life of grace becoming the father's adopted sons and daughters in Christ and members of his mystical body, Mm -hmm. the church. So there's a a number of other examples in the New Testament. If you remember in, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, for example, beware of practicing your piety before men in order to be seen by them by them, for then you will have no reward from your father who is in heaven. So he speaks to the people about your father. And again, when he says about giving alms, you know, how we should give alms in secret, he says, your father who sees in secret will reward you. Mm -hmm. And he says about when we pray, you know, to go into our room and pray, he says to your father, your father who sees in secret will reward you. So, so Jesus is, is um, multiple times in that Sermon on the Mount speaks of your father. And then, of course, he taught us to pray our father right. who art in heaven. So this notion of God as father is, is a really important thing revealed in Scripture. Again, we think of him as the father begetting the son, but then our relationship with him as his adopted sons and daughters. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, we move to God the Son in Scripture, Uh, the second person, the Trinity, as we said, he's the eternal Word of God who um, came to reveal the Father, 
St. John calls him the only son from the Father. And Jesus' intimate relationship with the Father is, is seen all through the Gospels. Hmm. He would go off to pray, to, to speak to his Father in private, and that relationship is so close that he says that astounding sentence, I and the Father are one. Hmm, we right. talked about that, I think, last week. You know, and he says, he who has seen me has seen the Father. Now, that's pretty dramatic. I mean, when you think about the Old Testament, you know, there's a lot of emphasis on God's justice, God's very transcendent, almighty. So there's an emphasis on the transcendence of God. Now we see you know, this, this imminence or personal nature of God. Also in the New Testament, Jesus is referred to as the Son of God. You know, that's a title that's so important. If you remember when he was tempted in the desert, the devil said, if you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Hmm. There's that scene in the boat where uh, after Jesus calmed the storm and they said, truly, you are the Son of God. The very first sentence of Mark's gospel says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And then even demons. Remember when the unclean spirits saw Jesus, they fell down before him and they cried out, you are the Son of God. So we see that title. And then, of course, the centurion, remember, at the standing at the foot of the cross, when he saw that Jesus had died, breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. Mm -hmm. So definitely, God the Son is clearly revealed in Scripture. Now, what about the third person of the Most Holy Trinity, God the Holy Spirit? Of course, as a, he's a distinct person from the Father and the Son within the one God, the, the Trinity. He's revealed as the highest gift of God. He's revealed in the New Testament as a personal and divine being, the Holy Spirit who's, you know, sanctifies the church, brings about the redemptive work of, of Jesus. So there are a lot of new passages that refer to the Holy Spirit. St. John the Baptist said that Jesus will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Jesus said where the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Mm -hmm. uh, so Jesus speaks a lot about and promises that the Holy Spirit will come. He says, the counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things. And then, of course, at the very end, hanging on the cross, as he breathed his last, he said, you know, he commended his spirit. But then, then on the first Easter night, when he appeared to the apostles, he breathed on them. And he said, receive the Holy Spirit, whose sins you forgive, they are forgiven. So those are just some examples of a very clear revelation in the New Testament of the three persons of the Most Holy Trinity. Mm -hmm. We also see in the letters of St. Paul, I mean, if you remember in his second letter to the Corinthians, this is something we hear at Mass, at the beginning of Mass a lot. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 14, St. Paul says, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Right. So really, each person of the Holy Trinity plays an important role, an essential role in our life. When we think about this, God the Father sent his Son 
to do what? To reconcile us to himself. And then God the Son reveals the Father. He offers himself as a sacrifice for our redemption, making it possible, our, this reconciliation with God. God the Father sends the Holy Spirit through the Son, who sanctifies us with grace. So God, you know, they, the persons of the Trinity working together as, I guess you could say, as a community of persons, the one God allows us to know him and invites us to share in his Trinitarian life. That's what we were created for, mm -hmm. to live with God, to live in the Trinitarian life. The Catechism says, hence the whole Christian life is a communion with each of the divine persons without in any way separating them. Everyone who glorifies the Father does so through the Son in the Holy Spirit. Everyone who follows Christ does so because the Father draws him and the Spirit moves him. Hmm. So that's the Catechism number 259. I think it's really important to think about not only how God is revealing his intimate life to us, but he comes to dwell in us. Mm -hmm. He transforms our souls into a temple in which he dwells. Remember, we read in John's gospel, we will come to him and make our home with him. And St. Paul, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? Now we can say, well, well, Christ is the true temple of God. It's true. He's God's presence on earth. But by God's grace, we Christians also become the temples of the Holy Spirit, living stones out of which the church is built. Right. When you think about the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, where did God dwell? He dwelt in the Holy of Holies in the temple, that innermost room of the temple. And no one was allowed to enter except the high priest, and the high priest could only enter once a year hmm. on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And there was a great curtain, so this inner sanctuary of God was hidden from the people. Well, what happened? We talked about this in another episode. When Jesus died on the cross, we hear, the scripture says the curtain of the temple was torn in two right. from top to bottom. So this separation of God from his people then was ended. Mm -hmm. Christ's death reconciled us with God. So there's no longer, and that's symbolized by the tearing of the curtain, but there's a detail there. It was torn from top to bottom. God rented from above. It wasn't humans who forced ourselves into God's presence. No. Right. God comes to us and now dwells in us as a temple. So this is really beautiful to reflect on the indwelling of the Trinity in our souls. Of course, the goal of our life is to be perfected and live within that divine communion of persons of the Trinity in heaven, because mm -hmm. that's what heaven is. Well, if you remember last week, you gave me some homework because I brought up the question about the burning bush, if, if that's some kind of manifestation of Jesus. Yes. So I did do some research and maybe we can get into that and get your thoughts on it, Good. as well as some listener submitted questions coming up here on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union.
Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman, and in last week's episode, I asked you, Bishop, about this uh, thought or teaching, I don't know what, what it would be, a theory, that the burning bush that spoke to Moses in Exodus, yes. Exodus if that was a manifestation of Jesus, and so you made me go research that. And I found an article, I did, couldn't find a whole lot about it, but I found an article from catholicexchange.com. Stephen Beale talks about the, the correlation between Exodus and Christ. When God speaks to Abraham and Noah, it's just a voice. But when he speaks to Moses through the burning bush, it's a little bit different because there's a physical manifestation in that this bush who should be burning to a crisp is not actually burnt and that it's a miraculous thing, you're on holy ground, it's a little bit different that there's a physical manifestation and that there might be, if it's not a, an actual physical manifestation of Jesus the Son, at least foreshadowing of that. Hmm. Uh, so I, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. There's actually another theory that... Um, I would have thought the Holy Spirit. Well, and then stpaulcenter.com had an article from Curtis J. Mitch comparing the bush to Mary and oh. that... Like the, and it actually, come, he has a quote from St. Gregory of Nyssa, who said, Just as on the mountain the bush burned but was not consumed, so also the virgin gave birth to the light and was not corrupted. Oh, neat. So, I guess a couple different theories. And yeah, yeah. I don't know if you call it foreshadowing or parallels or... Right, or types. Just, yeah. 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 No, that's great. Thanks. Thanks for teaching me. <laughs> Kyle, that's great. No, I, I had not, you know, I often think of how God at different times is revealed as fire. You know, mm. you have God, the, the pillar of fire too, going through the desert at night, uh -huh. you know, and during the Exodus, God at the burning bush, then again, fire at Pentecost. So I, I see that fire as, you know, a symbol of God and the power of God. I never associated it specifically with the sun, but so that's interesting that that is a way because it's God's presence on earth. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Very good. Well, another thing that you had brought up last week was the heresies mm -hmm. that maybe prompted some of the, the definitions or how, how do we come up with the, this mystery of the Trinity and the teachings of it? And, and did the heresies play a role in that? Yeah. You know, I mean, I already have shared how the Trinity is revealed in Scripture. Right. Okay. So, so we see in in the Old Testament, but especially in the New Testament, there's been this recognition that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. It's right there in Scripture. But it was in the early centuries of Christianity that some incorrect beliefs, heresies, errors sprung up about the nature of God. Mm -hmm. So you wonder, well, okay. That is why, for example, when we pray in the Nicene Creed, that there's very specific language about God that we profess in the Nicene Creed, especially also about there were heresies about the nature of Christ. Was he human? You know, how was he God? How was, you know, and so there were these different heresies that really distorted 
the true face of God, we could say. And that was very problematic. This was a big challenge because really the Holy Trinity is part of the deposit of faith. I mean, Mm -hmm. this is at the very heart of our faith that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God and three divine persons. And also, you know, about the identity of Christ, that he is a divine person, the Son, with two natures, human and divine. So we have this, this vocabulary like the word Trinity that developed in the early years to clarify the truth about who God is. Mm-hmm. Now, this took centuries to develop. So we have some very precise definitions regarding the nature of God and the nature of Christ because of these dangerous heresies. When you think about it, these strike at the very heart of our faith. There were some heretics who denied the humanity of Christ. There were other heretics who who denied his divinity. So it was important for the church to battle these heresies. And because, again, the nature of God is, is, is fundamental. Mm-hmm. So I'll talk a little bit about some of those heresies because then you start understanding the language of the Nicene Creed, hmm. which really were, you know, uh, and, and some of these, the, the, the terms that are used, you know, some of it was from Greek thought. We talked, I think, maybe a month or two ago on the program about Gnosticism, if you remember. And if you recall, the Gnostic heresies, it wasn't just one heresy. This was like a variety of heresies. But hmm. there's this general term, Gnosticism, which really lasted for centuries. And we even see it today. In some of the new, you know, ideas of new age thought, etc. And remember, they the Gnostics basically taught that the material world is evil. Right. So salvation, they taught, is achieved through this secret knowledge. Okay. They were dualistic. Remember, they had this uh, demiurge who was the creator of the material world, and then the divine being who was unknowable, you know? So, so the Gnostics believed that Christ wasn't fully man, nor was he fully God. He was some kind of a lesser divine being, and his appearance on earth was just an apparition, basically. Now, Catholic teaching against Gnosticism is that the world was created by God as inherently good, that uh, we're against this dualism, There's only one God. There's no demiurge creating the world. Christ is fully God and fully man. He became man and died on the cross for our redemption. He revealed the fullness of truth to us, which he entrusted to the apostles. This isn't just some kind of secret knowledge. This is public, Mm -hmm. and that was transmitted to the church. So we have these great defenders of the Catholic faith against the Gnostics, people like St. Irenaeus and... Tertullian and St. Hippolytus, but it was a real problem. And um, so that's that's kind of one of the heresies. Some of these other ones get more to the, the issue of the Trinity. Docetism is one of the earliest ones. And really, you have St. John, in, especially in his letters, but even in his gospel, he's kind of attacking some of the docetists. Interesting. Um, it, was, it was a form of Gnosticism. And docetism basically, like Gnosticism in general, saw 
matter as corrupt, okay, the material world as evil. So because of that, they couldn't accept that God became man, that the word became flesh. They said he really wasn't truly human. He just appeared to be so. That is what dose, doseo means, to appear in Greek. So he mm. appeared to be a man. He really wasn't. So he didn't actually suffer the crucifixion. Kind of like a hologram? Like yeah. It wasn't actually physically going through these things? Right, right. It was just huh. kind of an appearance. Like, how do they explain the passion, crucifixion, death of Jesus? They said, well, some of them would say, well, he was miraculously switched that really at that point, it was Judas or it was Simon of Cyrene who was actually crucified, not Jesus, you know? So, I mean, it gets kind of crazy. But Christianity, Catholic teaching is that, that God the Son truly became man who suffered and died for our salvation. So St. Ignatius of Antioch and others spoke, and I said St. John, when you read their writings, they, they were writing often against the docetists and defending the true humanity of Christ. You're talking about people writing to defend this stuff. Were there also meetings of people like debating or brainstorming on how we can clarify this message? Or was it mostly just based off of these writings and then they were compiled? Yeah, they'd be preaching against them, uh-huh. uh, preaching and writing. But there would be meetings too. Of course, the first great meeting was Nicaea. The council, yeah. The councils are the, the when the bishops met because it be, these heresies were such a problem. Uh-huh. Now, I mentioned docetism was pretty early on. A bigger heresy came in the third and fourth century with what's called Arianism. And it's kind of like the opposite of docetism Hmm. because it denies the divinity of Christ. Okay. So there was this priest named Arius, lived in the second half of the third century, first half of the fourth century, and basically said that Jesus Christ wasn't God was not equal to the Father, but was an exceptional man, an exceptional creature, Uh but a creature Uh that he was created by God and then raised to the level of Son of God. Hmm. And the reason he was raised to the level of Son of God was because he was so holy and, you know, he was heroic in his faithfulness to God. So God raised him to be to this status as the son. Well, then it seems like anybody could do that. Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, he would have thought, well, this is the greatest man who ever lived, Sure, is what he would have thought, you know, and he was... um, Of course, the Catholic faith is Jesus Christ is true God and true man, so he's true God. He is the son. But this Arianism became... I mean, there was one point when a lot of bishops had these Aryan beliefs. Hmm. And a lot of people, I mean, Christianity was kind of split between those who were Orthodox and those who were heretics. You had these great champions of the truth, like Athanasius. St. Athanasius was tenacious, (laughs) it rhymes. St. Gregory of Nyssa, who you mentioned, I think. Uh St. Gregory of Nazianzus. I mean, these were all defenders of the divinity of Christ against Arianism. But it only really got resolved with the Council of Nicaea. 
actually it didn't get resolved with Nicaea. Nicaea really? defined the Catholic faith, but Arianism continued afterwards. There was another council that still had to deal with it, which was at the first council of Constantinople. But but the council of Nicaea was in the year 325, so it was during the lifetime of Arius. Later was the first council of Constantinople, which was in the year 381. But it was at the Council of Nicaea that the Nicene Creed, in its primitive form, was approved. But it wasn't finished until the First Council of Constantinople, which was like, you know, 50-some years later. And it's interesting, we could talk a little bit about what was in that original Nicene Creed. Most of it is the same. But all that we profess about the Holy Spirit... That wasn't in the Nicene Creed. All it said was, I believe in the Holy Spirit. The parts that we say, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, with the Father and the Son is adored and glorified, all that was added by the First Council of Constantinople. Hmm. Because by that time, there was another heresy denying the divinity of the Holy Spirit, Okay, called Macedonianism. So that's another Trinitarian heresy. So when we recite the Nicene Creed, it's actually, it's the Nicene-Constantinopolitan Creed uh, uh, is its formal title, actually. Really? But because it's so hard to say Constantinopolitan <laughs> Creed, we say the Nicene-Constantinopolitan, we just say Nicene Creed. The Nicene Creed is really a statement of belief that is, it was really the Nicene first, the Council of Nicaea in 325, and then the amended by the First Council of Constantinople in 381. Very, very important. It's professed by Catholics, by most Protestants, Mm -hmm. by the Orthodox. You know, we hold these truths. We all believe in the truths of of the uh, Nicene-Constantinopolean creed. It's really a doctrinal creed. And, And part of it is against what the Arians were teaching especially the part about Christ. Because remember, they were denying the divinity of Christ. And what do we say in the creed? I believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God. When it speaks of the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God. Notice this is all affirmations against Arius. It's saying, yeah, he is God. He's God from God. He's not a creature. You know, he's the only begotten son of God. He wasn't someone who was raised to that status. He Mm -hmm. always was begotten of God, begotten, not made, consubstantial with the father. That word consubstantial of the same nature, Mm -hmm. the same essence, the same substance. So you understand when we say that, all that was was a defining of our faith in the divinity of Christ. And then, of course, I mentioned the part that was added about the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father, who with the Father and the Son is worshiped and glorified, who spoke through the prophets. And then the part about one holy Catholic and apostolic church, that all came at the first council of Constantinople too. Okay. So really it's both councils so that we get the creed that we, that we profess. Now who attended these councils? Basically bishops and a representative of the Pope. The councils were both convoked by the emperor 
and it was Constantine who convoked Nicaea, hmm. and it was Theodosius in 381 who was the Roman emperor who assembled all the bishops in Constantinople. Uh, it's interesting to read these great saints who combated the heresies like St. Athanasius. This was like a war. I mean, he was exiled many times. He was deposed, exiled, but then he'd come back. And he never gave up. He kept defending the true faith. Who was exiling him? The Arians. When the Arians came to power, it depended. You know, there might have been an uprising and there'd be a new patriarch of Constantinople who was an Arian and and then Athanasius would get deposed or the emperor became Arian. And so, uh, yeah, huh. you have to look at the whole history all through yeah. those decades. It was going back and forth who had power. Interesting. Well, and I never really noticed, I guess, or thought much about how much of the creed is defining and clarifying the Trinity and yeah. you know, describing it. And that's such a huge part of our faith. Yeah. Exactly. This was all ironed out in those first centuries yeah. as a response to heresies. So let's move on to the, the fifth century, and we have another heresy. And again, it was this time it was led by the patriarch of Constantinople named Nestorius. Now, I, one good thing, he wanted to emphasize Christ's full divinity, Christ's full humanity. But the problem is, he maintained that Christ was the union of two separate persons, a divine person and a human person. So therefore, he said, you can't call Mary the mother of God. You can't call her Theotokos hmm. because she's only the mother of the human person of Jesus, not of the divine person. Well, this is kind of making of Jesus a split personality. right? You know, there's one... Jesus is one person. He is a divine person. Like that, it's a heresy to say Jesus was a human person. You know, oh, Jesus was not only, a human person, right? He at all. Hmm. He was a divine person only. Okay. He had two natures, human and divine. Uh -huh. So the council that gathered that defined this is the Council of Ephesus, which occurred in the year 431 AD. And it was presided over by St. Cyril of Alexandria. It defined that Jesus Christ is one person, a divine person, mm -hmm. the person of the Son, with two natures, human and divine. Now, Mary didn't give Jesus his divine nature. Mary contributed the human nature but she's truly the mother of the person of Jesus Christ, who is God. We should rightly call her Theotokos, mm -hmm. the bearer of God, the mother of God. Right. Because there's just one person. Okay. Around that same time, or I think maybe a, a little bit later, there was another heresy which said that Jesus only had one nature. Hmm. And... It was the divine nature, and the human nature had become incorporated into the divine nature. So that heresy is called monophysitism. Mono comes from the Greek monos, which means alone or single, mm -hmm. one, and nature, physis, where we get the word physical. 
which means only one nature. So the heretic's name was Eutyches. Eutyches said that the human nature of Christ was absorbed into the divine nature. Like if you drop uh, a drop of water into an ocean, uh-huh. it's absorbed. Well, they're saying that's what happened. So, uh-huh. so basically one nature. Well, no, the true faith is Jesus Christ has two natures, human and divine. He's God and man. Mm-hmm. So this was defined at another council, the Council of Chalcedon, and that took place in the year 451. And the great defender of the faith against the Monophysites was Pope St. Leo the Great. And then maybe just one more heresy is that... Yeah, would you say that the two natures, the divine nature and the human nature, are inseparable? Or are they separate? Yeah. Or something else? There's that... What we speak of it as the hypostatic union. Uh-huh. They're distinct. Okay. okay. And it's, it's kind of like in struggling with this, for example, you, you get to the question of, of his will. Did Jesus have one will? Or did he have two wills? Uh If you say that he had one will, only one will, the divine will, that's a heresy. Okay. That's the next heresy. Okay. Monothelitism. Okay. Christ had two natures, human and divine, but he had only one will, is what they would say, a divine will. And that heresy was really, it gets to your question, it was proposed in order to reconcile the Monophysites with the church. But at another council that took place in Constantinople, and I'm trying to remember if it was the second or the third council of Constantinople, there was a condemnation of monothelitism. The church has always taught that Jesus was a divine person with a human and a divine nature and therefore two wills human and divine. Now, his human will was always in conformity mm-hmm. with the divine will. But at the the Garden of Gethsemane, he says, not my will, but your will. So he kind of right. shows that there's two different wills. Right, there. right, exactly. Yeah. Because in his human nature, he was struggling. Yeah. Okay. Huh. Yeah. But he his human will was conformed to the will of his father and the divine will. So these are very interesting things, but these ecumenical councils, these several ones at the in the early centuries of the church, really developed the vocabulary that we still use today. Mm-hmm. Some will say, well, this vocabulary is kind of so ancient, it's kind of hard for people to understand this idea of consubstantial and person and nature and all of this, but it's this human language to express really mysteries, the mystery of God. Mm -hmm. And I can't think of any better language. And one has to be careful because if one isn't careful about the language, you know, one could be saying something heretical. Like I have had to correct people when they've said, Jesus is a human person. You know, I say, no, no, no. He's a divine person. Uh He has a human nature, but he's a divine person. But anyhow, Trinitarian theology is very interesting. It's it's very beautiful in many ways, and it's very relevant, because what's more relevant than who God is 
and the fact that we're called to share in that Trinitarian life. All right. Well, we're not going to have a whole lot of time for questions, but if you have questions, you can go to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop. Call or text the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598. And coming up, we'll have some of your questions here on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman, and I know we said we were going to get into listener-submitted questions. We might have to save these for another episode, because I was wondering if you could clarify just a little bit on that hypostatic union, the whole two natures of God, and if they're separable. Of Christ, right. Um, Yeah. (laughs) I'm trying to to grasp all of this. Yeah. Well, remember the word hypostasis is, is the Greek word for person. So hypostatic union, this term uh, was used officially at the Council of Chalcedon. One person, two natures, hypostatic union. So you have this union of Jesus's two natures in one person, one divine person, but two natures, human and divine. So in his person, there are these two natures, divinity and humanity, mm-hmm. in complete unity, right? but without mixture. It's not like he's part human and part divine. Uh I mean, he's God and man. So there's not a mixture. There's a union, the hypostatic union. The way the Council of Chalcedon worded it, it, it said that in complete unity, these two natures are in complete unity without mixture, without change, without division or separation. Hmm. Okay? So... This is really important. And, and we ask, you know, well, how, does, how in Jesus does God and humanity come together? Is it like he loses some of his humanity or uses some of his divinity? No. Yeah. Uh, sometimes uh, I feel like, is he switching back and forth? Like right. uh, it's like two different personalities or something. No. And, and that's why the church had to really fight this heresy really vigorously to defend, no, he's fully God and fully man. Mm-hmm. He's both. Because if he isn't both, then we're not saved, Mm -hmm. you know? So this declaration of the Council of Chalcedon, that these two natures exist within the Son, within one person, without mixture, without change, division, or separation. And this is really very mysterious, Mm -hmm. you know, when we try to reflect on this hypostatic union. But what is the union? The union is the person, the divine Son. It's the divine person of the Son who is the bond between these two natures. And remember, the docetists, they were rejecting the humanity, the human nature. Mm -hmm. The Arians were rejecting the divine nature. We affirm both. And and the humanity and the divinity of, of Jesus do not mix. You know, there's not a change to either nature. Like when Jesus, when God became man, there's not a change in the nature. This is a mystery. I mean, this is kind of, when you think about this, this is not easy to understand, but we can see some analogies. Now, there's, it's not a perfect analogy, sure. but we have some analogies, like in marriage. You have two people, okay, they're distinct, they're different, but they come together in a very intimate, deep communion so deep that God says one flesh, mm-hmm. okay? 
but you have two people present, right? but one flesh. But they're not mingled together. And they're not so separate that they don't work together. I mm-hmm. mean, so... But That's they can't be separated. Right, right. right. Once, once, once God has joined, man must not divide. Right? right, right, exactly. So think about that image. We were talking earlier about the burning bush. That's, I think, another image that can be helpful to understand the hypostatic union because the bush is on fire, but it doesn't burn. Mm-hmm. Okay, so, you know, you kind of have to stop here. I mean, we can't really, you know, go much further. We have to respect that this is a mystery, uh-huh. the hypostatic union. Uh, we can't perfectly comprehend it, but it is, it's good to try to understand this relationship between the humanity and the divinity of Jesus. And really to respect the uniqueness of this and the limitedness, though, of our, of our understanding, you know, to try to navigate into the mystery. And it's just so, so beautiful to think about how the church guided by the Holy Spirit was able to come up with the dogmatic teachings that it did during these ecumenical councils right. to preserve the truth that, that we have from Scripture you know, that's what this does. It preserves the truth that was revealed to us in these dogmatic definitions. I mean, this is part of the deposit of faith. Mm-hmm. What we profess when we when we recite the Nicene Constantinopolitan Creed. <laughs> Very good. This has all been fascinating. Thank you so much, Bishop, for breaking this down for us over the past two episodes. I've learned so much, um, but this has been just a great opportunity to dive a little bit deeper into this mystery. Could we get your Episcopal blessing before we go? Sure. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now and forever. Our help is in the name of the Lord. Who made heaven and earth. May Almighty God bless you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes is brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union.